Wilcock, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that can never help referring to Rod Jane and Freddy as Rod Jane and Roger. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that no one else ever seems to is writer Jenny Morrill. Jenny, what are you up to and where can we find it? Oh, well, I write for Denner Geek, and I also write a blog called World of Crap. It's general nostalgia and shite. I'll be honest, if you're not a fan of Rainbow, you're probably going to have a bad time. But I mean, I, I do do other things on there. I do sort of bits of investigative journalism. Like one time I tried to eat 36 trios in a row and I thought to document my experience. And one time I had to watch every episode of Peppa Pig ever made, like in one go. And I had a bit of a nervous breakdown. And by the end, I ended up calling Peppa like a stupid spoiled whore over and over again. Well, I'm, I'm quite alarmed by how out of date the trios must have been that you were because I've not seen any for a very long time. <laughs> well, not that that would have stopped me, but they were new. They came back a year or two back. And I sort of read that we're coming back and I made my other half come with me around four supermarkets one night so I could get all the trios they had. And there's also, you found the diary belonging to an unidentified, I think, unidentified 80s teenager. Yeah, I know nothing about her apart from she lived in Menai Bridge in North Wales. I mean, I do know her name, but I've deliberately kept her anonymous. It was in a box at a car boot sale. And, you know, I couldn't not buy it. So I scanned it in and sort of typed it up for people. It was brilliant. She seemed to have a lot of boyfriends, but she could never quite make up her mind which one was her boyfriend. And my favourite entry in that, I'll always remember this, was she's like, oh, somebody died at school today. And then oh, I watched Top of the Pops today. It was rubbish. <laughs> she's like... <laughs> She just doesn't even care. Well, sadly, I think her diary ends a little too early to cover your first choice, but we're going to talk about it anyway. And here's a clip, because I couldn't find the actual adverts, which we'll come back to in a minute, to represent it. Right, babe. Christmas. What about this beaded bag for my mum? Mmm. And a PlayStation for your brother? Yep. Popcorn maker for little Hannah? Mmm. Ooh, look. Flamethrower for Katie and Matt's baby. Terrific. More arsenic, sweetheart. Great. So, while I've been sorting out the Christmas shopping, what have you been up to? I've got most of mine done at Boots, too. Wellbeing.com. Oh. Are you sure about the flamethrower for the baby? Does it come in pink? David Tennant plugging a range of Boots toiletries in 2002. We're going back slightly further in time for this. Jenny, what was Boots Global Collection? I'm going to sound quite boring if I just say it was a range of toiletries. But it was it was my favourite ever range of toiletries. They did it was like the early 90s, early to mid 90s. And it was based on just sort of generic themes from around the world. So you had like 50s American style peppermint lip gloss and stuff you had sort of oriental bubble bath and stuff like that you had a weird selection of stuff with like a polar theme called like ice cube stuff and it was all brilliant but i can never find any reference to it anywhere whenever i google any combination of these words i just get pictures of actual boots on people's <laughs> feet and there's just one time i found one picture of like some ice cube soap and that was it but the thing is, I'm, I'm obsessed with tracking down these sort of toiletries from my childhood because when I was in sort of year five, year six-ish, there were some girls in my class and oh, they were so grown up. It was amazing. And we were all like, oh my God, I want to be like them. Because the one thing that used to do was they'd go 
to Boots and they buy peach flavoured fizzy water. And we're like, oh my fucking god, that's so good. <laughs> we're there like with, with like um, Capri Sun and I'm Bongo. <laughs> and they're just like drinking the equivalent of, I guess, Pinot Grigio. And they had boyfriends and they had their own sanitary towels. It didn't matter that we didn't know what they were for. We still had some. And it was this whole thing of wanting to be grown up. You know, you, you get into that age where you want to be a teenager. So you start acting like a teenager. And this kind of sums up that period in my life. I would love to get my hands on some. It will probably stink of piss, like, if I managed to get a bottle of something on eBay. Well, they're probably at the back of a lot of bathroom cupboards, I suspect, because they seem like the sort of thing that would have been given as presents and probably, in many cases, not used very much. I mean, I went looking through a couple of magazines to see what I could find. The only things that I could find, two references, there was a column in The Independent in 1994, just snickering at the names of them, because there were things like Palm Balm, Snowshoe Cooling Foot Gel, Crowning Glory Hair Mask, Clear Off facial wash which I quite liked and also face oasis which is a beauty mask which I think they must have had that planned for about a year before it was launched and probably didn't realise that oasis were going to appear just when they released it so I wonder if they got extra sales on the back of that I wonder but I wonder if your average oasis fan back then would have shopped at boots for face mask I'm not sure well, the other thing I found was I did find a launch advert for it where some of the descriptions I mean, this is only 1994. It's not like it's the late 50s or anything. But some of these descriptions of the exotic delights we found in the range, I don't know if you could do them now. I mean, one says, even if you don't have a magic carpet to transport you to the exotic east, you can enjoy a Turkish bath of your very own with its rich, luxurious cream bath, enhanced with rose extract to soothe and silk, protein to help moisture, Turkish bath will leave your skin feeling soft and smooth, massage not included. (laughs) And uh, the other one that really leapt out at me was, the people of Ashima are famed for having luxurious hair. Ashima, Japan is a traditional source of natural Camila extract, renowned for its softening and cleansing benefits. The wonders of their world are now yours to enjoy. (laughs) It's just, that is appalling, even for them. Now, I'm not big on shouting at the past and saying, behave yourself, because, you know, you can't change what's been done. But even then, I would have thought, hang on, that's not right, really. I never did. I, I thought it was great, because, you know, we didn't have much money when I was growing up, and we basically just went to Ingramalls on holiday. So I'd never really been anywhere. And I was like, oh, my God, this is, this is so exotic. This is fantastic. I bet they actually use this stuff in, like, Japan. <laughs> Well, the main reason I remember these is I've searched high and low for any of these. I can't find any. There was an ad campaign where, I don't know if you remember, but just before the ladette became the archetype for women in adverts, it was a different kind of thing. It was kind of fresh-faced, giggly, intellectual women, usually on (laughs) tropical beaches, as they were in this series of adverts, drinking, you know, those huge cocktails with umbrellas sticking out. And a sort of hunky doctor came by and prescribed them items from this range. And it was, you know, the kind of, they'd always end with a joke kind of, ah, oh, wouldn't mind getting my hands on his emergency medical supplies. <laughs> and those adverts, because I think I fancied one of the women, and that's all I knew of this range of things. In fact, it's weird how even that kind of archetype's been forgotten about now, because I even remember there was a joke kind of based on that in Lee and Herring's Fist of Fun, in the, I'm not explaining this to anyone listening who's not seen it, but where Pestilence, the, the horseman of the apocalypse, was a milkman. Yeah. <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> 
they were kind of characters based on that sort of ad persona, and that's sort of disappeared now. I wouldn't know. I, I, I don't know. I suspect you're getting a bit too highbrow for me now. Archetypes, and I, I just mostly talk about biscuits, I'll be honest. So, you, you know, I've got nothing to add to this conversation unless we'll stop doing knob gags. Well, I think that's in more ways than one an opportune moment to move, to move yeah. on to your next choice, which is represented by this. Question. Get kicking. Just 17 magazine's crucial choice of the essential dance hits around KLF, DNA, Blue Pearl, and the Soup Dragons. 24 mean and mighty 12 inch remixes, all on one stunning double LP, tape, and CD, including Technotronic, Tricky Disco, and many more. It's time to get kicking. Okay, well, that's now better for Just 17 Kicking, which was a 1990 compilation album featuring music apparently aimed at melody maker readers, I'm saying. But it's not actually the album you're talking about, Jenny. What part of the Just 17 phenomenon are we talking about here? Well, I'll have you know, first of all, that I read Just 17 and Melody Maker <laughs> when I was 11. I was, I was a cool 11 year old. I didn't know what Tampax and Sanitratiles were for, but I was cool. Anyway, this is Just 17 Yearbooks. Which is, it's again early to mid-90s. I suspect the one I remember the most is going to be 1995. They were basically a Just 17 annual. And I can't remember if I legitimately owned them or if I just used to steal my sister's copies. Which, you know, would make sense because I would have been like a a snotty 11-year-old and they were proper teenagers. Although, I don't know if you actually got 17-year-olds reading Just 17, because they'll probably be reading sort of The Times and going to the pub by the time they're 17. I don't think they want to read about sort of gorge rad hunks. Can I just ask, were any super hunks rated in it? Because that was always my favourite thing, like my sister's like magazines and poster mags. There would be a rating of super hunks from bands, <laughs> and one always beat the other by one point. This was literally every teenage girl's magazine <laughs> on every page of every issue. But, I mean, th- this one I remember most, and it, it kills me because I can never find a copy of it. And again, it's it's me googling it wrong because whenever I try to Google it, I come up with you know just seventeen released um, a couple of novels. No. Yeah, sometimes they'd be like free stuck to the cover, or sometimes you could just buy them. They're all called things like you know Punk Hotel or, <laughs> or The Crush, <laughs> and there's, there's normally a scene in there where you know. She has to sit next to uh, Corey on the school bus and they have an awkward conversation. That's basically the plot of those books. Anyway, those books always come up. So I can never find the yearbooks because they were called a yearbook and not an annual, which was really annoying. Anyway, this one had an ongoing series, sort of, I don't know, every 20 pages or so. How to look like various celebrities. And the weird one I remember was uh, Justine Freshman from Elastica. There was a double page spread on how to look like Justine Freshman. And I wanted this because she was going out with Damon Albarn at the time, who, who I was very much in love with. So I was like, brilliant. In my head, it was brilliant. I'll do this. I'll make myself look like Justine Frischman. And then somehow I can fool Damon Albarn and he will go out with me, even though I'm 11 and a bit fat. Honestly, the tips were, were things like dye your hair black and you know, colour your eyebrows in Enviro and, and <laughs> you know, be an elastic. It was just things like that. 
he didn't say how to actually look like them, which is kind of probably get plastic surgery. But it was really, really good. And I would love to see a copy of that, just to see if it was as odd as I remember. If I ever did get a copy of that, I would probably make a blog post out of attempting to look like these. Well, I'm quite surprised, really, that they did have how to look like Justine Frischman. I mean, I know she was incredibly famous and popular at the time, but you know, I was a huge Elastica fan, but I was at university at that point. I got in trouble for writing in the review in the university magazine. Not especially proud of this now, even if it is quite funny, but I said all of Elastica looked like it had been dragged through a particularly thick fence backwards after wearing the same clothes in bed for a week. So they did, they were kind of glamorous scruffy, I would say, and then it later turned out they were all taking enormous amounts of drugs at the time, so I'm sure they didn't mention that in the How to Look Like Them guide. Not to the best of my knowledge, no. But I mean, whenever I went out around that time, which was every night practically, there were loads of kind of Justine Frischman girls everywhere, but they all looked, they dressed differently, they had the hair... They had the eyebrows, they had the look going on. They dressed completely differently, which is really weird. They'd obviously not read the yearbook. It was strange because, I mean, I, I was obsessed with wanting to be Justine Frischman for a while. And I used to dress exactly like her. I actually got into trouble at school a few times because, you know, I was in like year six in a, in a Catholic primary school. And I was supposed to be wearing like a kilt and a school jumper. And I was like, no. I'm coming in wearing Doc Martens, you can't stop me. I, I got into trouble with Mr. Patterson quite a lot for that. What else? We, we, there was how to, what colours you should wear for your, like, hair colour or your skin colour. And there was a thing, basically a whole page, just say, like, gingers should wear green all the time. Don't look at gingers, don't they look lovely in green? But I remember Smash Hits had yearbooks as well. And what I really loved about them was, I mean, Smash Hits was, like, wild enough just in its twice-weekly regular issues. But because I had all these pages to fill, they would go utterly over the top with boredom. I remember there was a, there was a comic strip about bubbles escaping from Michael Jackson by flying off on one of the llamas. <laughs> and seeking fame and fortune in his own right. And then he lost all this money and he went back to Michael Jackson, who, as if they could get away with this now, he said, you're too late, you ingrate. I've given your room to the remains of the elephant man. <laughs> and the other great thing, remember, there's a hobbies page where one of them was turn your TV into an aquarium. <laughs> We had, it was a step-by-step guide, and it was, you know, like a hollow out all the electrics, you know, fill it with salt water, put fit. It went on and on, and then it started saying, do not do this. Don't you remember that public information film? Seriously, don't do this. We're not legally responsible. You are dead. I mean, it was mainly kids reading it, and it was incredibly anarchic, because nobody was actually looking what they were doing in the yearbooks. It was a weird divide between Just 17 annuals and Rainbow annuals. <laughs> I'm 34, and I still have all the Rainbow Annuals, and actually most issues of the comic. Now, any regular listener is going to know what question I'm going to ask now. Did Bungle, Zippy and George have adventures in it independent of everyone else? No. The standard of adventure, the example plot is Jeffrey has lost his pencil. Where's his pencil? Of them. They are, honestly, those Photoshop comics, though, they write themselves. I once had an email from um, the guy who was the editor of Rainbow Comic, a guy called Mike Butcher, and he's like, oh, I, I, saw, you, I saw your comics. We used to take the piss out of each other in the office, like, pretend to be doing stuff like that. 
So, as far as I'm concerned, my stuff's canon now. Did they ever feature the sort of extraneous characters? I mean, not just Roger and Freddy, who I'm sure appeared in it, but did they ever have, I can't remember his name, Zippy's rapping cousin? Or did they have Jeffrey's auntie, who was made unemployed by the Biscuit Factory? As far as I know, they never had auntie in it. Probably had Zippo. They had the dog quite a lot as well. But, and this is exciting... They introduced new characters just for the comic. New characters, like, we're going to see my friend Andrew. So they go and see Andrew, and then Andrew is never heard of again. Was Andrew a human? Yeah, they don't know anyone who isn't human. It's just them and the humans. Right, well, I suspect that... Andrew might have been involved with. When I was growing up, me and one of my sisters always had a big debate about Rainbow, which was, you know, the be sort of filmed inserts where Geoffrey would say, this is what happened when they went to the zoo with Mary and Jeff or whatever. And we argued about, I thought... I thought they were the producer's children. They just said, my kids want to be on TV. Take them out. <laughs> my sister thought they were Jeffrey's children from a previous marriage. And it was his maintenance visit. Well, I'll be honest, I don't think that's right because I'm not sure how many kids Jeffrey would have to have. Well, she did later meet him and she asked him what happened. And I was gobsmacked by this. He said, well, what would happen was I'd go up to families and supermarkets and say, would your children like to be on Rainbow? Imagine just getting accosted by Jeffrey and co-op. Wow. Wow. Do you want to be on Rainbow? Fucking yes, I do. I'll try and look up Zippy because I'm curious. Well, again, I think that's probably an advisable moment to move on to your next choice. I cannot think of a link from that into this. So I'm just going to play the clip and be done with it. La mer Quand on va danser Le long des golfes clairs à des reflets d'argent la mer des reflets changeants sur la pluie Right, well that was Le Mer as covered by the, I think I'm saying this right, Christian Hagedorn trio, which is quite a nice version, but we're actually talking about, not that's forgotten in itself, but Jenny, what context are you remembering it in? It was on a P&O advert. I swear it was on a P&O advert. Now, P&O cruises they had in the 80s or 90s, it probably that weird crossover time, you know, late 80s slash early 90s. P&O had these like lovely animated adverts. Why something across when you can sail across? I don't, I don't know. I think why sail across when you can cruise across? It probably wasn't why swim across <laughs> because I'm probably remembering that wrong. Anyway, now I used to watch the P&O advert with that song over the top of it and then I didn't hear it again for years and years and years and years. And then I heard it as an adult and immediately I thought, oh, it's the P&O song. And then I looked and again, it doesn't exist. Thing is, there is no other way I would have known that song. My dad listened to The Shadows. My mum, I think, had one Phil Collins tape. I would never have heard that song had it not been for the P&O advert, so I swear to God, it existed. Well, I remember it, actually, but I remember it featuring Beyond the Sea, Bobby Darren's English language version, so this is a bit of a mystery in itself. Maybe they did two versions, but like you say, it's just not out there at all. And in fact, looking for it, the only thing I find was weirdly... Gareth Malone doing La Mer with the P&O Ferries Choir on one of his dreadful programmes. But Wow! How bizarre is that? I'll be honest, I bet I'm the only person that would say wow 
in response to that. But I'm so glad you remember it, because I just thought, I might just go in that. Well, I mainly remember it, because it was around the time of, you know, there was that, hand in hand with Britpop, there was that easy listening revival that... Oh, Mike Clower's Pops. Yeah, um, I mean, it was kind of, it kind of spun out from, there was a more serious thing where people were digging out, you know, actual good songs, you know, funky, groovy instrumentals that made by the people who produced the kinks and things like that but yeah it became a bit sort of you know ha 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 polka dot tie sort of thing but there were a couple of clubs that played all that sort of stuff you know all the kind of loungy mac the knife kind of things and one of them i used to go to used to finish with la Mer. Wow. and so i remember it you know because i didn't know what it was at that point and then it was on this advert it's beyond the sea i remember thinking oh that's that but that's in english i'll be honest this is probably going to be a bit of a, a quick section because there's not much else I can say about it other than shall we write to P&O or shall we just go to where they are and ask them probably at the seaside yeah but why sail to see them when you can cruise There are adverts that, you know, used to be everywhere that have just disappeared. I mean, the one I would love to see again, I've never, ever found, to the extent that I know it existed because one of the first things when we first got a video, we recorded and kept rewinding. It had a choir singing to the tune of Morning Has Broken and names of different sort of breakfast bread products. I think it was for Kenwood Toasters. I just remember it ended with the choir going, Pops are perfect every time. And then they all looked up and saw the shadow of a giant piece of toast looming over them. <laughs> That's nowhere out there. The Baco Foil one, where, again, it's different words to the tune or something, but it's La Donnery Mobile and the turkey sings, Why go and wrap up me in Baco Foil just for tea? And a chef with one of those big tangly opera beards comes out and says, Oh, turkey, can't you see? It makes you so tasty. How there is nothing finer than stuffing. And the turkey says, Yes, I agree. Now bake foil me. <laughs> so this man dressed in turkey has agreed to be cooked and eaten. And then the end voiceover says, Bake foil. Even a turkey can find out its uses. Oh my god. And there's no trace of that anywhere. It is weird how these things can be, especially when you're a kid, they're a regular part of your life for a couple of months maybe. And then that's it. Yeah. This is basically just if anyone can shed any light on that or if anybody can, you know, send me a copy or something. It's like I've got the component parts, but I haven't got them together. I've got the song and I've got what I, what I think is the visuals, but I haven't got them together. And it's, it's really annoying to the extent where I'm going to have to start bloody splicing my own video together. It's a P&O fan video. I'm going to have to do that. OK, well, speaking of short films, moving on to your next choice where I don't know what I'm going to use here because the thing I wanted to use I've not found so far. But let's have a listen anyway. We seem to be having a few technical problems here. So while we sort them out, here's a short animated film from Poland entitled The Bear and the wedding dress by celebrated dissident filmmaker Andrzej Mayakovsky. Now we apologize for the delay. We'll bring you the Mayakovsky animated film, The Bear and the Wedding Dress, just as soon as we sort out the fault. Well, I'm sorry, apparently that was Mayakovsky's celebrated film, The Bear and the Wedding Dress. So now, without further ado, we're going straight back to the studio. Okay, well, with a bit of luck, that's the Mel Smith and Griffiths Jones joke about award winning Eastern European animations. But if it's not, that's something else in there. But this isn't actually your choice, Jenny. No, this is for Alex, my other half. I'm just going to quote verbatim what he put down for this. Sometime in the 80s, on immediately before The Snowman, there was a strange Eastern European, I think, cartoon. It involved a bird. 
that had all the flesh from its wings pulled off and then was forced to live its life as a bat. I had this on video and saw it several times, albeit only the last few minutes of it, which was all that was recorded. I think it had been recorded after a film. I have scoured the TV listings and there is no reference to any cartoon on before the snowman in the 80s, nor does IMDb list anything remotely resembling it, unsurprisingly. No other online mention exists, and I did write a little note to you. Personally, I think this sounds like something written by a serial killer. Well, I'm fairly sure a lot of those animations were written by serial killers. <laughs> I believe that existed, because I remember these weird films. You know, they would just turn up when there was a gap in the schedules. Quite a lot on BBC Two, but particularly on Channel 4. Yeah. I, mean, I remember some really horrifying ones I might come back to in a minute, and I could never understand what award they'd won, apart from the award for being the most pointlessly grotesque animation. There were also sort of things as well where adults is weird view of what children were like. Yeah. No, they, they don't. They don't. But the snowman being involved in it is an interesting adjunct anyway because there are so many weird things surrounding broadcasts of the snowman, genuinely, that people can't pin down. I mean, for years and years, nobody believed me that it was first on. It had David Bowie at the start saying, oh, I remember when I built a snowman, or whatever it was. It had a little film bit with him yeah. introducing it. There was Ben Baker who's been on this show a couple of times. He remembers a broadcast of it where before it, the continuity announcer said, and now he's coming. It's like the snowman <laughs> was coming to murder you. Obviously, we'd love to find that, but Channel 4 always put these things on. There's a really scary thing that used to be on a lot in the early 90s, especially around Christmas for some reason, called The Sandman, where it's kind of like half a vulture, half Mr. Burns from The Simpsons went around stealing children's eyes. Oh, God. That used to really creep me out, that, when that turned up. But these things would be on unlisted as well. So it's entirely feasible that this thing was on before the snowman somebody thought oh the children are like that about the bird with his missing wings <laughs> now you say that now it's possible that it could have not been in the tv guys that adds a whole new dimension to it then i mean i have no idea what he's talking about and i'm surprised that he was allowed to watch this because i was like his mother was kind of very cautious when he was a kid. She would never let him watch Star Wars because she thought it was too scary. Things like that. He was he was never allowed to watch. Uh, he wasn't allowed to watch He Man, I don't think, because because it was too much fighting in it. I am surprised that this was allowed. It's like you can't have a man in a bra throwing people around, but you can have like a bird that gets its skin ripped off. That's fine. Have you ever Googled for it? Or did just well, nothing come up? Or did you just get Gareth Malone sinking against <laughs> Gareth Malone with a choir of birds posing as bats? What the hell would you Google for that? I wouldn't know. I mean, okay, I would just Google, hello Google, what is that thing? That there's a bird and then it's apparently a bat. Also the snowman. He seems to be at the root of all this. Do you think we've stumbled upon something like there's like a curse of the snowman, right? And so all the programmes surrounding the snowman are all like, have you ever read Candle Cove? Okay, it's a creepypasta for about a TV show that only the kids could see. Spoiler alert. Anyway, these shows come on and then only the kids can see them because they're like they put in the TV by like demons or something. And then the adults think they're just watching, I don't know, Countdown or Static. But really, they're watching these creepy haunted shows. And then the snowman's on. And I put it to you that the snowman was invented by like the devil to attract 
kids to the telly where it can then pop in its surrounding shows and somehow fuck the kids shit up via the telly. Well, I've got a theory that sort of supports that, which uh, I'll just do a quick test. Who sang Walking in the Air? Oh, that other dude. Ah, well done. You've noticed Peter Orty and that was originally released as a single. Now, did he know too much about the snowman so they wrote about history with Alan Jones? Oh, my God. Oh, we should write a book about this. We should do. You know, they have, like, on the Discovery Channel, they have, like, ancient aliens and Hitler, the new evidence. We should do this. We should make, like, a documentary. And we're determined to uncover, like, the snowman is actually the work of, like, hell. Can I just ask what the new evidence of Hitler is? Quite intrigued by that. (laughs) They've always got shit like that on Discovery Channel. (laughs) Because, like, you know, it's something like something, something, the new evidence. It's always on. It's that and, like, porn stars. We should make this documentary. I am generous, and I will let you do all the investigating. And then I'll add some knob gags. <laughs> I don't know if I dare, really. <laughs> going back to Hitler, the new evidence, that does sound like an early song title of the band involved in your next choice. Let's just have a listen to them in action. Tell me about your makeup and costume. You use a very um, popular high street store as well for all your gear, don't you? Yeah. Go on, you might as well confess. Yeah, you're allowed to. I think it's quite interesting, actually. Uh, Miss Alfred is the best kids. Right, well, that was Nicky Wire and Richie Edwards from the Manic Street Preachers on, wait for it, ITV Saturday morning show Gimme Five in 1992. (laughs) (laughs) Because when they first appeared, the Manic Street Preachers, I think nobody knew what to make of them. They wanted to be one thing, the music press wanted them to be another, and telly wanted them to be another still, which is how you got weird things like when they were on The Word and they were supposed to be doing Love Sweet Exile and they did Repeat instead, and the audience were baffled. But it's not so much that, it's somebody making fun of them for all this. Jenny, what are we talking about here? This was a column in either Melody Maker or NME. Now, I think it was Melody Maker. Diary of a Manic Street Preacher's fan. It was basically this emo girl before emos were a thing. It was meant to be the absolute stereotypical, depressed, eyeliner-wearing, completely obsessed Manix fan. She's particularly obsessed with Richie, and she's got a poster of Richie in her bedroom. She keeps thinking that, oh, like my Richie poster definitely moved today. He definitely looks at me a bit. And the other thing is she's always, like, getting corrected by her little brother. So she's like, oh, I can't sell all these people, all these sheep, and they're their superficialness. They don't understand how deep I am. And then he's reading over her shoulder. He's like, that's superficiality, not superficialness. She's like, oh my God, you're so mundane. Go away, leave me alone. So she's basically whinging about how everyone else is superficial and she, and how Richie definitely moved today. It was brilliant. I will say, this is so embarrassing to admit, I can see that fun in it now. When I was actually reading it, I took it quite seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Because I basically was, I was her, but with Radiohead. I was such an annoying shit teenager, seriously. So did you take it seriously in the sense of getting upset and annoyed by it and how dare they make fun of Richie? Or did you actually think it was a serious thing? Kind of a bit of both. Like, I kind of knew it was meant to be a piss take. But mostly I was just like, oh, yeah, I, I feel that. I feel you pain. <laughs> I'm sure my Tom York poster moved as well. I <laughs> <laughs> got uh, that, that would necessitate the actual Tom York moving, which I have some reservations about the idea of. 
But they were a very easy band in that incarnation to make fun of the Manic Street Preachers. I mean, I remember, because it was the Collins, McConey and Quantic era of the NME when they first appeared, and they were merciless about the Manic Street Preachers. I remember particularly the Christmas issue in, was it 1991? On one of the humour pages, it had Why Christmas is a Time for Old Folks by Nicky Wire. <laughs> and it's a poem that went, Oozy moron techno party, you are slaves of Belgian Hitler, giving, taking Vietnam in your front room. <laughs> I think it's that, isn't that far removed from some of their actual lyrics <laughs> but i remember the the column that i used to really love around them was it was around the t- i don't think it was even called Britpop yet but it was the first sort of stirrings of it when blur were doing for tomorrow and elastic was starting to appear and so on nme had gadzooks it's eddie england it was about this sort of neo mod who was forever charging around throwing bits of the waddington's game compendium at like nirvana fans <laughs> Shouting about justice for checkers. Oh my god. <laughs> that kind of was me in a sense around <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was Melody Maker. I think I read Melody Maker more than Enemy, and I think I liked Melody Maker's back page more than Enemy's. I think Melody Maker did Mr. Agreeable. To be honest, I used to read that and laugh because swearing. <laughs> A lot of my childhood was basically spent reading things that weren't meant for me, really not understanding them. I had to read my mother's Mills and Boom books when I was like six. And she's like, how are you getting on with your little book? I was like, well, Linda's carrying Mark's child and, and then she, <laughs> they've got to catch a play. And then she's like, I'll take that off you now. But I, I did used to read things like her Flowers in the Attic collection. Virginia Andrews sort of, you know, quite a dark family saga. Things like they're just things that really weren't meant for me. No wonder I turned out so weird. The other thing I remember about Melody Maker was when they did the top trumps. Oh, was that where Bears had no points in <laughs> on his car? It sounds like it would be right, yeah. I had them all at some point. I would bloody love to come across a copy of those. They had really obscure people from obscure bands. Bands like Smash that you'd only seen on like one compilation. But they needed people to go in it. So they just got everyone they'd ever heard of. Did they have Amanda from Fluffy? <gasps> she was always in everything like that. Even though they weren't that famous. That takes me back. Probably, anyway. Just out of curiosity, what do you think of that phase of the Manic Street Preachers now? Because it's kind of... I'll be fair to them, they've not tried to write that out of history. They always put, you know, the angular, unobtuse early singles on Greatest Hits albums... They're always reviving songs of the Holy Bible and so on. But the sort of people who got into them when they became the post-Britpop Manic Street Preachers, the big stadium-filling characters, I can't imagine many of them listening to Repeat Stars and Stripes and thinking, hmm, I must listen to that again a lot. Yeah, well, that's the weird thing. Because of this, that is how I view Manics. That is the band. And then they became strange when they started doing, like, Australia and stuff. And I was like, wait, what's this? Because I'd grown up with this completely different band. I mean, I, I still like them. They're very good. But I heard them a while ago on, like, BBC Radio Wales. And they're like, oh, lovely bunch of lads. Manic Street Preachers. But then it was like, <laughs> or what it was called. The, the lovely bunch of lads who went on Top of the Pops and Terrorist Balaclavas to do faster. <laughs> but, you know, fair enough. Good luck to them. Didn't Nicky Wire go on some celebrity thing? Did he? Oh, I really I'm want that to be true. true. I hope I'm not making that <laughs> up my head now. I don't want to say like he was going to be in the jungle or something. Well, I'm really hoping it turns out to be celebrity one man and his dog, because that would give me a nice neat link to your final choice, <laughs> which... 
for reasons that will become clear, we haven't got a clip of the actual thing, so instead we've got this. On the map of North America, the Mississippi River and the Rocky Mountains roughly divide the continent into three parts. Before civilization made its mark on the land, all the territory east of the Great River was virgin forest and rolling meadow. West of the Rockies lay pine woods, rugged peaks, and barren desert. And down the middle of the continent stretched a broad, treeless plain, the American Prairie. Okay, well that's the trailer for Disney's true life documentary, The Vanishing Prairie, which is about as close as I could get to something that is quite interesting. But again, it's not your choice, is it, Jenny? No, it's something my dad wants to find. And he said, if you don't include this, I will actually disown you. It's a film you can't find anywhere, and I can't find it anywhere, and I have looked and looked. A Disney or Disney-type film. He thinks 1950s, colour, live action. A mountain shepherd falls ill or gets injured, and he has to go to hospital. And while he's in the hospital, his dogs look after the sheep by themselves, like all winter, while he's in hospital. And then you cut to him in hospital and he's like, oh no, all my sheep will have died, all my dogs will have died, oh no. But he comes back and he's like, oh my God, lads, you've looked after my sheep. Wow, brilliant. He probably doesn't say that. And apparently at some point in the film, one of the dogs gets injured and some of the other dogs have to like look after him as well. You know, they all crowd around, they're going, oh, for fuck's sake, Steve, we don't, this is the last thing we need. But anyway, so the, the dogs all look after the sheep and this injured dog, and they keep things ticking along, like for the farmer while the farmer gets back. He's gone into so much detail, this can't be not a real thing. Well, we're so near and yet so far on this, because I've no idea what it was called, but I have actually seen this. I'm convinced of it, because Disney started, I don't know if they've been doing it for years afterwards, actually, but in kind of the early 80s, late 70s, when I very first started going to the cinema, they started recycling their old short films as supporting features for their new films. Things like that western hang your hat on the wind. I remember seeing a short cut down version of Candle Shoe before something. But this, I'm convinced that I saw it before The Rescuers. Oh, right. And the reason I'm so certain of that is a couple of days later in, I might have been in the first year of primary school, but I was certainly very, very young. And the teacher said, does anyone know what a prairie is? And I very confidently put my hand up and said, a place in America where they have lots of sheep. But because of that film, that's why I thought that. Okay, so you you think you've seen it, you think it's a short film? Yeah, I think it was, you know, it was flung back out to save money because they did do that quite a lot. One surprise is I did try and find, because, you know, obviously Disney is the sort of thing that attracts terrifyingly obsessive fans. But there isn't a resource out there to say what short features went with which film. That is a damn shame. And there should be, really, because you know, sometimes that's the most interesting thing about films from... When was it they stopped having shorts before films? Was it in the late 80s? Well, but... Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've never seen one. But like, I remember more than... Because I went to see The Empire Strikes Back in the cinema. I didn't see the original Star Wars. I was much too young for that. But when I saw The Empire Strikes Back, what I remember most is the supporting feature... Black Angel, which I think the second unit made during spare time on The Empire Strikes Back, which it's kind of sword and sorcery fantasy thing. And I remembered that more vividly than I remembered, you know, the film that 
I'd gone to see and had all the action figures off. But yeah, you would quite often get these really interesting things before the main feature, or in this case, maybe possibly not that interesting. I don't know. The way he's always put it across is that he thinks it's like a proper, proper film. But I wonder if he's just sort of misremembering it a bit, and it is a short film. I mean, because he was born in 1949, so it's, he could have seen it in the cinema, like, as a kid. Do you know what I mean when I say this sounds like it should exist? This sounds like a film that everyone's seen, but nobody's seen it, but everybody's seen it. Because as soon as he said it, I was like, oh yeah, I've seen that. And I was like, no, I haven't, actually, but I have. Well, it did cross my mind that what I saw could basically just be an identical film, because let's face it, that is a that is a pretty, I wouldn't say standard storyline, but it was, it was basically, it's a storyline of Black Bob in the dandy every week. It's such a shame, because I mean, this... To me, this is the most important one. This is the one I really, really want to find. So if, if anybody out there, you know, has any idea what it might be, tweet Tim or tweet me, and, and that that would be that would be lovely. Because I mean, this is this is what I seriously want to find. Well, I was going to say if any Disney fanatics are listening, but even if if Walt himself is listening, <laughs> suspended animation, <laughs> please let us know. But can I just say it's not necessarily Disney? He did say it might be a Disney knockoff. So you know. Just bear that in mind. It's, it's probably Disney. Yeah, it's probably Disney is not a phrase that fills me with a great amount of joy. <laughs> Jenny, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can't help thinking about me like Tim Worthington. A big book full of old articles giving a new twist, looking at how and why I ended up on the BBC News channel with a big caption saying, Clangers Expert. More details, timworthington.org.